0: And we're in the X section of the lib section of the L section of Slackware packages. So the first one on my list is libxkbcommon, which, yes, okay, that's correct. I, th- I thought that was actually kind of wrong for a minute, but now I'm I'm remembering. Okay, so libxkbcommon is, um it it stands for something like uh X keyboard extension that's what that is XKB X keyboard extension um so and and it it's its name i guess is a little deceptive because it's not actually just for X it's not just zorg it is also for wayland and i and uh, other other systems as well but this is the thing this is the um, this is the subsystem on 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 your on your computer that 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 makes your computer aware of how your keyboard is laid out, and that's one of those things that when you realize that that's software, you, you just think I don't know. For me, it made me view keyboards differently. You know, as uh, for for such a long time, the keyboard was just it was just the keyboard it was just this device that made letters appear on a computer and i never for such a long time i i didn't really think of how a computer understood it i just i just always kind of assumed that it was sending very specific signals to the computer but it's actually i mean it is it's sending key codes to the computer but those are just those are just binary signals what do those translate into well for for there to be a trans, you know, something. If if you're getting signals, then you need you need a legend. You need a map. You need a a key code or a a, a codec. You know, you need something. You need a way to to decode the signal. And it's it, it, the the signal is is you know like the A key on a keyboard. Is that the A key or is that just A? key (laughs) um i guess that was a bad example uh on on the left most uh on your left finger of your left hand i don't know um is the return key a return key or is it just a key over way over on the right of your keyboard well it turns out that they're just keys they're just keys at a certain position on your keyboard and what you actually want that to produce when you press it is entirely dependent upon the computer. The way that libxkbcommon understands what you want is through a key map. And this that's what xkbcommon provides, are, are key maps for common keyboards. They're, they are stored in user share x11 slash locale, I think. Something like that. Yeah x yep 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 that's it um and and you'll see a bunch of a bunch of layouts there in user share x11 locale uh you'll you'll find a bunch of different keyboard layouts and are they how, how easy are they to decipher are they at all easy to decipher let's look at one real quick um well you know what there's the compose file has always proven pretty useful to me. That's how you make uh, different characters appear on your keyboard through by, by pressing a, co- a set combination of keys in a, in a specific order. Now, in order for that to work, you need to hit a compose key. You probably don't have a key labeled compose on it on your keyboard, so you have to designate a, a key in KDE or your Plasma Desktop, I mean, or in GNOME, or whatever desktop you're using, you have to designate one key to be the special Compose key. And then once you press that Compose key and then a certain combination of letters, then you produce a different character, a unique character. So for instance, if I hit my right ALT key and then press O C, I I get the copyright symbol. I don't get the letters O C. I get i I enter compose. So now I'm in compose mode. And then I hit O and nothing happen nothing visually happens. And then C, and then that completes that sequence and types and, and, and results in the copyright symbol on my screen in my terminal in this case is what I'm typing into. So that's how that's that's how compose sequences work. And and those are defined um thanks to XKB be common because they came up with that series of, of letter combinations to produce a specific uh, glyph on your screen. But it can be even simpler than that. It can just be the difference between a US standard QWERTY keyboard and a US Dvorak keyboard. Or it could be the difference between the US keyboard and a UK keyboard. Or a French keyboard or a German keyboard and so on. libxkbcommon is the the library that that parses all of that information and it does provide an API. So that programmers can um, can can use this in their applications. Is there a better API? Why, yes, there is. And that's the next one in the list, LibxClavier. If you go to freedesktop.org slash wiki slash software slash libxclavier, K-L-A-V-I-O. Er, um, then you can read all about it, and so this is basically just it's it's another layer of uh, of interactions for for developers uh, to use to, to to talk to keyboards or to to parse the input of a keyboard. There is a short document regarding quote why multiple layouts rock, um, and it's available in uh, LibreOffice format. Or in PDF, but the LibreOffice format is a fun one. It's SXW is the, the extension, and I, I'm thinking that's got to be like StarOffice or something, because what, what is SXW? I'd never seen that before. Um, anyway, it opens up in LibreOffice, and um, yeah, it, it's talking a lot about the, the, the libx. Clavier um, API and why it provides a couple of extra features that libkbcommon does not. I'm not going to go into it because um, it's it's. They say it's a short document, but it's it's a pretty good read. Um, it's a lengthy read, is what I'm saying. But it's also a good read. Like you should should check that out if if you're at all interested in this sort of thing because um, it is it is interesting. Okay, next up is libxml2. This is a C library to parse XML. This was one of the first development libraries I personally ever used. It's kind of funny, when I when I first used libxml2, I, I didn't know anything about it, I didn't know anything about... I, I barely knew anything about XML. Um, I just knew that I had XML that I needed to parse. This was on... Uh, this was at a job. I, I had XML that I needed to parse. And so I was looking for a way to parse it. And the internet just ended up leading me to lib.xml2. Now at the time, I did not understand really. I should have because I was compiling stuff and using, you know, I was linking to libraries and stuff in a very manual way. But I didn't quite understand what a library was at the time. And so it was really confusing to me. And I wonder if their website is basically the same to this day, because um, you know I went to the website. No, it's completely different. I went to the website, and and it didn't. You know, it it. it I guess it. To be fair, I mean it, it said no. It is the same. Yeah. Okay. So go to w- uh, xmlsoft.org. This is what I. This is how I found this library. Eventually, you know, I, I ended up here, and it just didn't. It wasn't really clear to me how this worked. And in my head, I think I thought this was a, like a command. I, I, th- I think I thought that's how you programmed. Was that you just gathered a bunch of commands together and made them work? in in synchronization Uh, and i didn't i didn't quite understand how to import a library yet um so i was kind of yeah i was in between a lot of different sort of almost understanding something but not quite and so this was my first library experience and i finally figured out that yeah you had to write a C code, a C, You had to write C code, and you were going to be using m- functions and and things from this libxml thing. But how to find that out? What function did what? What what function is even available? I mean, it's just such a. I mean, it was, it's days. It's days and days and days of 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 learning new things to under, just to conceptualize some of this stuff. Um, and I, I never did. I, I, the, the whole project sort of just fell apart eventually because I just couldn't make any headway. And looking back, of course, I'm just thinking, oh man, there were so many ways to parse XML that didn't involve libXML. But if you are writing C code and you need to parse XML, libXML Two technically is the, the 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 exact library here libxml2 from xmlsoft.org. That's the way to do it. That's one of the ways to do it. You can import that library into your C code, and you've got a bunch of functions that can look at the XML. Now, the the, the you know with C code especially, like yes, you've got a library that 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 understands stuff. But I mean, do you understand what to do with the with with the data that you're being given from C you know there's there's a lot of juggling around of, of data that that needs to be done and, and that's if you don't if you're not super familiar with C and, and it's and, and how it it reads information and, and what you can do with it then you know you're going to be learning something quite quite different In other words this is not like an XML parser for Lua or Python this is this is just raw c and so it it what sounds like oh my gosh there's a library for that that'll be easy it's like yeah but you're still writing in c <laughs> is that easy maybe maybe not so um i don't know personally yeah lib like xml if i was going to parse it me i'd probably just parse it with java or Python, or Lua, something. Uh, okay, libxslt. This is the library providing XSL transform for XML. Um, XSL is the style sheet technology, I think I've talked about this before, when probably I was talking about XSLT proc or something. yeah, XSL is essentially the style sheet of XML, and it, it's kind of a beast. It's no CSS. Let's say that it is. It is a a set of rules and uh, matching rules that you write, and you're writing it in XML, and and then you're applying it to XML. And it's interesting. It really is. I have written entire web pages in XSL, and it it, it has. It was an interesting experience. What, what, you know, is it practical? Is it is it something that you should do? No, not really. It is an interesting exercise in in parsing data, though. So, um, libxslt is the library that 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 provides style sheet ability to your C application. This, this is the kind of stuff being used by um, you know, DocBook and and that sort of thing. that That's how that that's how data in XML is is. Processed. The nice thing about XML and XSL and all that other stuff is that it's just so darned explicit. Like there it's just so it, it, it that if if something is enclosed in two tags, then that is unquestionably the data that you're looking for. You know, it's just it's it's very easy to identify. Um so there's, I, I do I I love it in 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 that sense, uh, but I, I I fully admit it that it's not always the easiest thing to parse. Neither is YAML, which in fact is the next library on the list, libyaml. Um, YAML is yet another markup language, or ain't another markup language, and it is a a method of of listing data or of providing uh, value and key pairs that's what yaml does that's literally the two things that it does it can create a list it can create a you know what what you might call a dictionary in in python terminology which is not a bad thing to relate it to because uh, python and yaml share some quirks such as really really being very picky about indentation Unfortunately, so I, I do like YAML. I mean, like in theory, um, I'm I'm quite familiar with YAML now. So uh, I've I've I think I've you know this whole Stockholm syndrome. Really, I mean, it's like. I like it because I am familiar with it. I I don't know that I would like it otherwise. Um, And and once again, it's not always the easiest thing to parse because there's so many just kind of like conditions that you have to look for in order to parse it. But lib.yaml can help you do that in your C code. And that's nice because someone else has already written the conditions. And those conditions are things like, well, how much is this thing indented compared to that other thing. And if this is indented more than that, is it a valid does it con contain a valid data type? Is it a um is it a list or is it a dictionary? Or or as they say, in YAML, is it a mapping or a sequence? Those are the two data types in 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 YAML. There that you can map things, which again it's basically a value and a a key value pair, or is it a sequence? And a sequence is just, it's a list. It is a, it, it's a series of values, and that's it. Now, you can, you can, you can mix the two together. For instance, you can have a, a sequence in a mapping, so you, you could have a, a value, like, um, or, a, a, yeah, I guess it would be a key, it would be uh, maybe Linux distributions colon, and then a sequence of distribution names indented underneath that so you'd you'd indent it and you'd have fedora and ubuntu and slackware and so on. Now, if you're if you're trying to parse that yourself, like, and I don't know, in a bash script or something, then, you know, I'd, I don't know how you would do it. You'd have to count the indentations, and then if it is a... if you judge that this thing is indented more than the line above it, then yes, it is a child of that thing, and then you'd have to check, well, what was the data type that I judged the previous line to be? was it a Was it a sequence, or was it a mapping? And given that information can this current line validly be um, a mapping well with with lib yaml um, all of that logic is already being figured out in the library for you. And all you have to do is, is include it in your code and then use whatever function it provides to parse that, that YAML data into what format you actually want it in. And, and that's a lot of times what that, what all of this stuff boils down to is that the data is contained in one format and you need to get it into something else, whether it's just I just need the value assigned to that key because this is a configuration file. Well, then you have to use the function to find that key and then to just extract the value and put the value into a variable and then read that variable into your application or whatever. Next up is libzip and it's a C library for creating zip files or reading, uh, creating, and modifying zip archives. That's important if you are writing an application and, for instance, you want to be able to zip up the data for your user, whether it's because that's how you're managing file, you know, the, the your file format. Like, LibreOffice files are actually zip files. You may not have known that, but they are. Like, if you extract a LibreOffice write document, like an ODT. With zip, you'll see all the XML and stuff that's contained within that document. You could do that in your own application, in your C code. You could, you every time your user saves their their data, you could zip it up and put a different extension on it and say, that's my file type. And that's a not an unreasonable way to, to do things. That keeps all the data that they need for their file together and kind of out of their own way. I mean, it can be a a stupid way to obfuscate stuff too, but generally I think a lot of times in open source it's used to just to keep logically related files together in a convenient little archive package. So libzip helps you do that. The thing it doesn't help you do is get coffee. So we'll have to do that ourselves. Let's go do it. We'll come back, finish up the show. (music) it feels like we would never reach this point, but we're here. We are out of the lib section within the lib section, as I've said frequently uh, at the end of shows, of course, that the just because we're past L-I-B-whatever doesn't mean we're out of the L section. We're just out of the L-I-B naming scheme. So there's still quite a lot to go within the library software set. But at least we're, we're past the L-I-B. We're, we're up to L-something else now. And specifically, that's L-M-D-B. But first, I should mention the summertime coffee blend from Flight Coffee. I, I keep saying don't, don't attribute too much to Flight Coffee. Just because I rave about Flight Coffee every other episode doesn't mean that there's anything that special about Flight Coffee. But the more I talk about it on this show, the more I kind of start to think that maybe there is. Because frankly, the coffee is really good from Flight Coffee. I don't recommend trying to order it from New Zealand the shipping would be outrageous but if you're here try flight coffee as they as they do they came out with a, a special sort of like you know limited time only coffee blend for the summer here in New Zealand. Obviously, it's winter in the Northern Hemisphere, but here it's summer, so summertime coffee. So I ordered it. I'm, I'm always up for a seasonal coffee. I'm, not, I'm a sucker for that sort of thing. I don't know why, I guess just because it's something different. But uh, the summertime, last, last summer, uh, it, was, it was something else. It was not summertime coffee. It was, I actually have the card for it uh, back there on the bookshelf. But uh don't have it in front of me so I'm, I'll skip over it but it it was oh what was it something something funny it was like I don't know the big chill or the 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 cozy no that was cozy was uh the big cozy was winter obviously yeah I don't remember but the summertime blend this year is really quite good there's uh it is described as having sort of the flavor of apricot an after flavor of apricot and to be honest there is a little bit of a flavor of apricot again it's not literal flavoring they don't like put apricot syrup into the thing or something it's but it's it's um it's a flavor that evokes to you, or might evoke to you, kind of an earthy, fruity flavor, and that is there. And it's really, really good. I've tried it um, in my mocha pot, I've tried it in the plunger, and I've tried it in the the stovetop uh, percolator. And yeah, it's a a good, a a bright coffee is the the term I keep using for for these coffees that I'm really enjoying. Um, I think I'm I'm kind of a, a Weirdly, I'm a sucker for, uh, for for mild... Well, I guess I'm really just a sucker for coffee, because I was going to say mild coffee, but that's different than bright coffee to me, and that's different than deep or rich coffee. So, actually, I I quite like all of them, but um, I guess I like the variety. So, the diversity. So... Really good coffee, summertime from flight, that's what I'm having right now, and we're going to talk about LMDB, not to be confused with IMDB, the Internet Movie Database. This is a database, it is a LibM database, which I think, from what I'm ascertaining, the m is for memory, I think. I couldn't exactly find an ex- like, uh, that stated explicitly, but the big f- feature of mdb which was developed for open LDAP, apparently but mdb the the big feature here is that it it maps a the the database to memory so you're kind of using a database just kind of like out of ram so it's super super fast and i couldn't quite gather from the source code which i did look at i i i, I don't have a complete picture like a workflow of how the data gets from here to there and then back to here because even though you're using this ultra-fast like we're talking 250,000 index searches per second on a million record table that's not a test that I ran it's a test that some some people on the internet ran but that's the kind of numbers we're talking about so really really fast real-time memory database functionality but it doesn't just live in the in in memory or else if there was a power outage you would lose um you would lose your data so it, it does get written to disk eventually so i'm assuming there's some kind of almost you could you might even think of it as like a journaling process or something um or maybe it's completely different like i say i couldn't quite unravel it uh, at, uh with the quick read through uh that i did of the source code it is open source it's the source code is right there you can look at it yourself and and see if you can figure it out you studying it long enough, you probably will be able to. Um, or, I mean, it's possible. If you study it long enough, it's possible to understand what's happening. I don't know, and this is why I just did a quick read-through, whether you know, it's all that important to understand what's happening. I mean, um, the, the proof is in the pudding, as they say. You, you use MDB, and it's pretty darn fast. Uh, faster than just trying to read databases off of uh, your standard spinny disk. Is it faster than something off of NVMe? I don't know. Um, Anecdotally, I can say that RAM disk is very, very fast. I think I've mentioned before that I've really taken to using a RAM disk Pretty much as my downloads folder, and sometimes I very unwisely—this is not recommended—I very unwisely kind of use it as a working directory. I shouldn't do that. I, I try to not do it, but to be honest, I do it. Um, and it just—it opens files so quickly, it saves things quickly. It's—it's it's a noticeable difference, which is fascinating to me because NVMe was a notable difference from uh solid, you know, the the old solid state drives. I don't I don't know what they are, but you know, the, the normal ones, the saddle ones, I guess. Uh and that was of course a notable difference from a spinning disc. So you you just keep going further and further to I guess we're we're down to that point where every sort of couple of microseconds makes a difference to your to, to whether something is noticeable or not. And I'm I'm at the point where, yeah, a couple of microseconds, I guess I'm starting to be able to detect that. I mean, I don't know if it's literally a couple of microseconds, but you know what I mean? Like the difference between opening a big old uh, PDF, which, you know, slow to open every time, right? You, but the difference between opening that PDF from a spiny disk or, or an SDD or NVMe or RAM disk is just, there's no question about it. it it's faster on RAM. So big difference for accessing data, huge difference, and that's really significant for a big old database when you're doing anything that's supposed to be interactive. Something that people might notice the a, a delay, um, and where that where that delay might cause people to stop using the thing. That's a significant thing. So. Um, it looks like I did the LDD trick where I'm doing user, er, looking at everything in user bin. I I could look elsewhere, but I'm just looking in user bin Uh, and doing an LDD for uh, lib or what is it? What did I grep for? LibMDB. And that comes up for actually quite a few things within the KDE framework. Things that I wouldn't have... uh, Expected maybe like Elisa, E L I S A. That's the the music player that I actually do use uh, pretty much every day. Dolphin, Gwenview, and then some things that I, I guess I would have expected if I'd if I'd thought about it, which I didn't know what mdb was used in so i didn't expect it to be in really anything but um i I didn't not expect it to be anything i just didn't expect i didn't know what to expect but but baloo b-a-l-o-o baloo the file indexer uses that which makes a lot of sense because i mean i think kde has a little bit of a a burden with with file indexers i mean they've got a little bit of a you know people have been maybe burned a little bit by what was it nepomuk right i think was the 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 file indexer before i just always had that off blue i've actually left on i think last i looked um maybe i turned it off but I mean, Baloo hasn't really sort of negatively impacted like the performance of my desktop, which cannot be said of Nepomuk. Nepomuk, there were times where it was just like, you just, people would just say, well, yeah, just wait for it to index all of your files and then use your computer, which just isn't the modern computer experience, really. So um, Baloo uses MDB, Gwenview, ELISA, and those are the big ones that kind of, leapt out at me mutt actually uses it as well but I would imagine possibly that that's for actual open DAP um, integration although maybe not I'm I, I was using mutt at work for a very long time and did have it integrated with LDAP. And I only quit using Mutt because it just became, uh, it, 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 it made less sense to have my email in a separate client at a certain point. And just having it in Evolution, because I use Gnome at work, um, just kind of made sense because that integrated with the calendaring function and so on. Yeah, Mutt does apparently use it. So it's, 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 a, it's a featureful database, very fast. That's LMDB. After that, there's Loudmouth, which is a C library for programming, uh, in, like, with, for, whatever, Jabber, the Jabber Protocol, working with the Jabber Protocol. Jabber Protocol is a chat protocol. It was, or I guess the, the official or generic name or term for it is, what is it, XMMP, I think. Or is it... No, yeah, it's got to be XMMP protocol. That's the... um, No, it is not. XMPP.org. That's the Extensible Messaging and Presence protocol uh which are it's an open technology for instant messaging uh for setting whether you're around or whether you're away from keyboard or whether you're busy um chatting in chat rooms with with lots of people instead of just one person it can do voice and video calls and so on i i I forget which came first and why the the name Jabber is a thing but uh, as I recall the XMPP protocol is the underpinning of 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 this messaging protocol the most famous implementation of that being Jabber. So and and I don't think Jabber is around anymore is it really? Like Jabber <laughs> that's funny there's Cisco Jabber is that Is that, is that the thing? Like, is that, yeah, I think it must be. Maybe not. No, surely not. Cisco couldn't have bought Jabber. Maybe they did. I don't know. Anyway, Jabber used to be like a little open source project where you could chat with friends over what turned out to be the XMPP protocol. Loudmouth is a way, if you were going to write a client, you could use Loudmouth to make that happen. That's really kind of all that needs to be said about this. It's, it's only used in Macabre, M-C-A-B-B-E-R. It is a console client, a chat client, that you can run in a terminal to speak over Jabber. I, I don't remember seeing this in the big, long list of applications. So maybe this could, I don't know where this would be. It wasn't in the A set, I guess. Um, yeah, I'm not sure wha- how Macabre is on my system uh, or where it is in the repository of Slackware installable files, but it is on my system, and and it uses, according to ldd, uh, it, it's the one application in user bin that uses Loudmouth, so that's why Loudmouth is is there technically. But you could use that to write your own client as well certainly um and i think i think a lot of these chat protocols that i mean xmpp was good enough for google chat to be to use it for a very long time and then google for whatever reason it would only be speculation to attribute an actual reason nobody knows somebody knows but, but it's not public knowledge uh google decided to to not use XMPP anymore. And now their chat client is um, very much a, I guess, a walled garden, colloquially speaking. It is something that you can't interact with uh, through open technology, I, I think you can still tap into it, but you need like a Google API key so that you can authenticate through, you know, programmatically and and so on. So it's it is a lot less well, certainly less interesting to an open source enthusiast, and uh, it's a real pity. But but I think when that happens, if if nothing else, it it demonstrates how robust an open source technology can be. It is a thing that that people have um, relied upon. Like, if, major, you know, Google Talk is apparently what it was called. Um, even if that was something happening in 2009, when there were maybe, I don't know, you know, a couple million fewer Google users or something, it was still a lot of people. So that's kind of, kind of interesting. Um, and I think a lot of these open technologies are important for chat. Well, for for the reason that we're, for for the reason that we, that we've not learned today. I mean, think of how many chat clients you have to uh, negotiate with in your daily life. I mean, maybe you don't have that many, but I mean, I'm just a normal guy and I've got like, let's see, one, two, three, four, four chat clients installed on my system right now, or, you know, consciously installed. I mean, I, I also have Macabre, but I didn't realize that was installed. But I mean, you know, like I've got four chat chat clients that I that I use and you could say well you can use friends or something like that like one of those aggregators and yes I could do that and that's fine and that's uh, perfectly like that's a great service but Uh, Did I say four or did I say five? Because I just remembered I have matrix uh, as well. So that's 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 something like five or six chat clients intentionally installed that I use for some reason to communicate with people whether I, I want to or not. I mean, like in terms of, you know, maybe something's for work, maybe something else is for this project, this open source project that happens to use this client, and therefore I can only interface with it if I down, download that client. You know, the the coupling, I guess, of the chat protocol with the application that, that, that you use to chat, it's a horrible idea. That's a terrible, terrible idea, and I cannot believe that that's where we are now. Like, cause we, I feel like we've already done this. Like there was ICQ and AOL and others. You probably have a couple that you can remember. You know, there were these chat, Yahoo chat. I mean, there were these chat platforms back in the early 2000s, late 90s, whatever, probably early 2000s. And yeah, definitely early 2000s. Anyway, uh, there were all these chat platforms and people, you know, like would never know how to find each other because everybody's on a different sort of network as it were. And 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 then we kind of things got. I, I feel like things kind of got a little bit a little bit normalized, especially with Google Talk using XMPP, because then you could use your whatever chat client you wanted and and interface with that person over over their Google Talk account or whatever, um, and and other 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 things like. Jabber because that's XMPP, and uh, I think there were connections actually reverse engineered ICQ and AOL as well. Uh, I'm thinking of Copete uh, around I don't know 20 2010 or so, 2012 maybe. Um, so you had that that flexibility, and now I just feel like we're we've regressed so much, and and, and once again it's like if someone happens to open their their project server uh, uh, chat account on discord then guess what you're gonna go discount you're gonna go download discord uh if they opened it on um the n- uh, google chat then guess what you- you're gonna have to use a google account to get into that thing and and Talk to them, and 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 a lot of these are just bound to clients. Like you just don't really have a choice. And I know that it's probably happening as I speak. Reverse engineering all the protocols and and interfacing with things through um, mirroring chat bots and things like that. All of that's like possible, but it's just I don't know. It feels like a real step backwards, and it just annoys me. An open protocol just makes more sense it really does. Loudmouth, you, you can program your own Jabber client with Loudmouth. Let's talk about LZ4. That is the fast and lossless compression algorithm. LZ4, lossless compression, uh, providing compression speed of uh, lots and lots of megabits per very few um, units of time. And, you know, we've all heard it before. It's, it's compression. It's a library that helps you create compressed files. As I've said before, this is the kind of thing where, um, as a programmer, the process of creating like a file object on a file system is a lot different than doing it from a terminal. I think for the intermediate Linux user, getting into programming that can be a very very puzzling thing to get used to and then it doesn't help that a lot of the introductory languages i say a lot i mean python uh sort of g- goes to some it, it, it does a lot to help you get around that concept by specifically through the shell Module. So really, if you're coding, if you're writing a program and you want to create a compressed file object on a on a file system, then you you ought to have a library that that does that and writes the bits out in a specific order uh, onto a certain position on the on the hard drive. And that's how it's done. But for a terminal user, you know, you just do like touch file.txt uh, and then tar c v f create verbose file file dot tar file dot txt that gets tarred up and then you do a you know whatever gzip on file dot tar whatever could all you do that practically in one command but that's that's the process right you you're you're doing you're typing in commands a library you don't do that you 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 invoke methods and functions and things like that to make to 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 have the computer do that process for you and in Python of course they have the shell module where you import just the shell and then you write your shell command out as basically entries in a list that python then executes in sequence and um I think it, it 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 gets confusing because to a lot of intermediate computer users that, you know, it's, it's like you have to, it's a very literal translation of that process. Like, oh, this is how I did it over here in the terminal. Therefore, this is exactly how I'm going to try to emulate it in my code and it's, sometimes difficult to realize, no, you don't have to do it that way in your code. Like the process can be different, but you have to learn that or rather you have to unlearn what you knew in a terminal to get it into uh, the correct, um, the correct syntax or the correct, just the correct way of thinking about it in code. We see this a lot uh, with, for instance, Ansible, where everyone using Ansible at the, for the very first time, your, your immediate thoughts are, well, how do I emulate, um, I don't know, this DNF command with Ansible? Well, um, you don't. What you do is you check to make sure, uh, or you check whether an application is installed, and then you use some Ansible module to, to answer that, to, 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 to solve that requirement if it is not there. But you don't, you don't, you know, it's it's a different process. You're literally, you're looking at the end result rather than initiating anything at all. And with code, that's kind of the same problem. It's not the exact same problem, but it's it's similar. Because you know how to do it from, you know, point A to point B to point C, but in code, you don't have to do the A and the B. Really, all you need to do is, like, have the library generate C or whatever. So that's LZ4, there's also LZO, uh, the compression library, uh, portable uh, lossless data compression library written in ANSI-C. It's pretty fast compression and very fast decompression. I like that. Pretty fast. That That's that's a, a refreshing change. Uh, so that's LZO, um, LZ4 and LZO, and that's the L section. That's it. That's all the L's of the L of the L software series that is all the L's and I think that sounds like a good place to or a convenient place to stop so I think I'll declare the episode over I mean we could get into the M section but it just feels kind of neat and tidy to have done all of the L's or to to gotten through all of the L's so let's start with the M's in the next episode thanks for listening I'll talk to you next time I beg you, frozen meals are bad for me, especially chocolate.